0: 52 yards should be just a nice comfortable nine iron
1: for him. They're gonna go nuts when he hits this thing. Yo, yo, welcome in, golf fans, to another episode of Preferred Lines. Happy to have you here. We're going to cover the Dell WGC match play here um, shortly in just a few minutes. If you are new to the program, um, thank you for joining us. We appreciate any likes, subscribes, sending to a friend. Uh, Whatever you can do to sort of spread awareness for the show, it goes a long way. What else goes a long way are my boys' fantasy golf pod you see up there in the upper-hand corner. Um, Proud supporters of the show, my guy Chad. I had some good talks with him last week. Um, Josh, we, we hope you're feeling better. We hope you're on the mend, buddy, but uh, proud to have them as supporters of Preferred Lines as always um, and looking forward to to what's to come on both ends. So here's what we got going on tonight. I'm going to bring in a guest in just a few minutes. Really excited to talk to him. We've sort of communicated off online, I should say, for a while, but, but never really talked um, face-to-face over the Internet. So that'll be fun tonight. Um, we're going to shift our complete attention over toward you know the Dell WGC match plays early start this week we're going to get that in we're going to talk brackets we're going to talk bets we're going to talk paths we're going to talk optimals Um, without any further ado let's bring him right into the show now live folks joining us on Preferred Lines welcome uh Fantasy Sports Writers Association Writer of the Year dude you've done it all you've got new shows you're with the Action Network speaking of match play you got the show with Smalls what's going on Spencer Aguiar?
0: Well, Joe, first of all, I really appreciate you having me on. I feel like you kind of explained it best. It's been a long time of us following each other. We haven't had the pleasure to actually get to speak to one another. So I'm very excited to do this. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places you can find me. Like you can find me at Rotoball or Action Network, Champions Round with Smalls. Now I have my Better Golf podcast. Uh, there's a lot out there.
1: There's a lot out there and it's all and it's all very good stuff. It's all very consumable. You have a great personality, you're great on camera, you're extremely informed. So, um, anything that you do, I enjoy following. I caught the first episode of the show with you and Smalls and Thank you. and I commend both of you guys, both you and her on on doing a fantastic job. Look, it's hard to it's it's I know the feeling where it gets kind of intimidating to like enter in this space. So, I try to be one that just always shows support for others who are doing it. We're still such a niche community. Um, and I, and there's some that I think view that as a, like a, a, competitive aspect there's, there's so many different options now, but look, there's, there's a voice for absolutely everyone. I'm not that voice that is going to strike a, a strike home with a lot of people. And I understand that, but there's so many different options and that's sort of the beauty of it is find someone or something, whether it's a belief system, whether it's a betting style whether it's just a perspective on life that is in alignment with what you were looking for and kind of resonates with you. And, and I commend you on sort of taking that jump and trying something new. It's cool.
0: I appreciate that. And like, that's kind of the thing, like Steffi and I were talking for a long time about doing the show and it's not something we just threw together overnight and we wanted it to be different. Like I'm obviously a very mathematical person. Uh, Steffi, I think, would tell you herself. she shoots from the hip more with it and we wanted to make an engaging show that was you could tune in and listen if it's your first time ever watching golf and if you're a fan of the sport that considers yourself an expert, you can go and listen to find the knowledge there. And I have to say, like I mean Steffi is incredible on that. like I know she does a lot of football content, but I thought Steffi was just brilliant. like I mean, she does a great job in the golf space and, uh, she's obviously a massive star in general when it comes to this industry, but uh, I'm very excited and very honored to be able to be next to her on that.
1: Yeah, it's fun, right? It, it's fun and it's, it has an entertainment aspect to it, which I think will will always kind of, um, will always be a win. So speaking of fun and entertaining, we've got a little bit of a different format and something that's a change of speed this week. Um, in terms of match play, tell me about your pre- process like we focus primarily on on betting and in sort of outright cards for this show purposes but where like do you How much are you looking into it? And do you think it's possible to overthink things a bit to a degree this week? Because it feels like so much is about paths and who's going to beat who. And it feels much like the NCAA tournament that after like round one, all the paths you thought that were going to happen have totally shifted gears.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point that you just said. And tournaments like this are always tricky because it does take the classic volatility of a golf tournament and it accentuates that boomer bust nature of what can happen in one round especially when you turn this into a whole bite, whole output of match play competition. I think from a betting perspective, it's probably one of those events where rollover betting will exceed the actual outright prices that you can grab in the space. So the best way to describe that to anybody is like, I'll use Homa for an example here, instead of betting Homa to win this event at 20 to one, I would rather bet Homa to win his first match. And then you can remove the stake that you had. Just take the win on it. If he gets the win, double it down in the next match, maybe bet them to win the group. If you know, that's the more conducive way to do it, but by doing that, and then every single round, just keep going all in with the winnings, keep going all in with the winnings, keep going all in with the winnings. You're going to find yourself in a position. That's going to be better than 20 to one for an outright. But the one key even beyond on that is, is you're in a spot now that at any point you can move yourself out to where you don't need to have that outright ticket to where, okay, how do I hedge this wager now? And I'm not a person that hedges, but, You can take some money off the table if you find yourself in a position like the best example I would give of that is Corey Connors last year. I ended up rolling Corey Connors over and look, I'm an aggressive person. Corey Connors, if he would have won the golf tournament, and I usually bet an outright to win about eight units. If Corey Connors would have won the tournament last year, I would have won a hundred units by rolling it over. And it was risk-free at a certain point with it. And unfortunately, Kevin Kisner seems to be the ultimate doom that I run into. I had that happen one <laughs> year with Morin. I had it happen with Connors last year. And it's an unfortunate situation, but I know there's a lot of people over at Roto or when I was recommending that, that took either all the money off the table before that semifinals matchup, half the money off the table and found them in positions to where they want a ton of money for the week. So that's why I think rollover betting is so conducive here. And it's just a different aspect of how you can go about it rather than saying, this is the person who's going to necessarily win. And then I get pigeonholed into where I can't get out of that wager. And uh, just for reference sake of that, I usually roll over the all four semifinalists that I do. So I'll find a way to get exposure to all four of those names in different capacities with it. And obviously if they all can win their first match, then I can just be free rolling the rest of the tournament from there. And uh, like last year it worked out perfectly. I had Hatton, Kepka, Connors, and I can't think who the fourth one was, but, all four of them won their first match. And I was in this ideal situation to where I free rolled the tournament. And yeah. obviously if that happens all the better with it, but it's not going to be a spot where I can lose a ton of units. Like at the end of the day, I'll lose the matchup and you know, we'll move on with it.
1: That's an interesting strategy. I definitely do a lot more matchup betting, um, for the, throughout the week, like in terms of total matchups placed at this event than any other event throughout the year. Yeah. Um, I think more so is just because I enjoy keeping track of it and keeping fun. And you have the extra day, of course, and the additional matches and opportunities that present themselves. What what's Is there a future for match play in your opinion? Like, is this the last time we're going to see this? Because like in speaking, like I was talking to my dad earlier and just trying to, Like explain to him and he gets it. He gets sports. I kind of use the World Cup analogy of the pool play and he understands it. But it's a five day event as a very casual fan who probably just wants to tune in Sunday afternoon. All the drama is gone. Do you think there's a place for this on the PGA Tour schedule um, or, or is this the last hurrah?
0: I mean, maybe the way to do it is you do it something to do with the FedEx Cup, whether that be the last 32 players at the end of the year play match play for all the money with it. I love this event. This is my favorite event on the schedule just because of the (laughs) unique nature of how you can build in any capacity. I don't even want to just say with betting because like I agree with you. It's a really good tournament to just bet daily matchups in general. Like, you don't need to be this boom or bust nature with the rollovers. Like, you can actually just bet these matchups and find edges. And I I tend to think that the books give you pretty decent pricing here compared to some of the matchups that you get from a normal tournament. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I hope the answer is yes. I I hope we're in a spot to where we have some form of match play with it. And I think from a DFS perspective, not that we're going to talk a lot of DFS here, it's the most unique tournament just in the structure that, you know, I think people have gotten smarter and you kind of even mentioned this, just talking about the industry as a whole, like it's not me versus you and you versus Mayo and we're all against each other, but there's a lot of people that release really good information out there. And and I think all the people that talk about DFS have beaten this, you know, over the head that there's suboptimal builds that happen on DFS, like just a very quick answer to that. and, And we'll just leave it at that if you're not building lineups where all six of your players can make it to the quarterfinals and all four of your players can make it to the semifinals, you're already lost. Like you cannot come overcome that. So I think like with all of us releasing that information, sure, there's going to be the 95% of people that are going to do it right, but there's still the 5% of people that end up paying the rake. Unfortunately, we need somebody to pay the rake with it. And I think that's where the edge comes into play. And I love things where you have strategy. Like I loved poker for that reason. I love the ability to try to outsmart somebody going head-to-head with them and try to find a strategy that's unique and different. And I think the match play does that better than any single tournament because like, it kind of goes to where if you look at this draw, the left side of the bracket has a 14% edge in my value over the right side of the bracket. So what that means is if all of a sudden, let's say Rory McIlroy loses or John Rahm loses early, it's going to be chaos over there. Like you're going to get, in my opinion, specifically on the bottom four end of the bracket. So like that would be the Xander, Fitzpatrick, Hatton, Rory group. If it's Mm -hmm. not Rory, Hatton, or Fitzpatrick, you're going to get somebody that's going to end up becoming a semifinalist that nobody really thought. And I think from a rollover betting perspective, that's where this becomes really interesting because there's a player that kind of, looks a lot like Corey Connors in a different aspect, but he has the ball striking. And like that to me is what's so intriguing because all of a sudden, if you told me I rolled this player over and I had 70 times, you know, like if I was getting 70 units or a hundred units, seems very doable to me. It's just, can he get out of his group? And that's where it comes down to like trying to get unique with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like, I actually think it's a perfect event for betting, and like it's nice to see them start to embrace it, dude. I can remember like four or five years ago where, um, the second matchups of the day, you, you, I'm like scrambling for odds, like books weren't even that hip to even post matchup lines on the second odds, and now you can basically get them hole by hole. Um, for every single group, which presents even more opportunities in terms of guys who, you know, have have favorable upcoming holes or have shown that they crush that one par five that's extremely downhill. So there's a lot of, you know, the drivable par four, there's a lot of really good match play holes and additional strategic elements that you can kind of put in place this week. It's interesting you said about the left side of the bracket holding an edge over the right side. I do think there is, you know, so I'm looking like, in terms of the optimal build, and, and I don't talk much DraftKings, but I did watch a little bit of, of my buddy Rick's show earlier, and it sounds like like he said like twenty five or thirty percent of entries last year were not built optimally. Yeah, maybe it's more than that, I said.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Which is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so so check that out. Check out all the other people who do did great DraftKings content. But it's interesting from. Um, even just advancing out of pool play like it's it the the amount of number one seeds who end up getting out typically on average is about five or six of the 16. It does feel to me I get a sense that I'm looking at some of those group four guys and the bottom of the it just feels like there's less like quality players in this event that I've seen in years past and I don't know if that's um, a trickle down thing from live or there's some guys that kind of turn this down but like you mentioned Brooks. Like I had him last year, and I think he he beat. Did he beat Rom?
0: He, yes, yes. And he then beat he lost, Rom, to but he was like Dotson, the second yeah.
1: tier guy. And there were a lot of those guys that were like not even in, in, in a top sixteen seed that got into this. And then you look at sort of the bottom end, and it does feel like the number one seeds. And we've kind of seen this play out over the PGA Tour season. Like the, the separation between the guys who are at the very top and that sort of 50th, 60th guy in the tournament range seems to be a bigger separation to me than in years past. Are you sort of feeling that as well, or is that just what we've kind of seen play out thus far?
0: No, I, I think you're right. I, I think when you lose the Brysons and the Kepkas and the Cameron Smiths and the Dustin Johnsons to live I mean, I mean, and it even goes beyond that, like an Abraham answer, that's such quality that he was adding to these events in general. And you look at the match play portion of this, like the bottom of the board does get really bad. There's some groups to where, you know, like I always pick on Kevin Kisner and, and I know Kevin Kisner is the match play specialist and I'm going to always let him and make him beat me. Like I, I have absolutely <laughs> he's the 60th of 64 golfers in likelihood to advance. Like I'll leave it at that with him, but. There's a lot of players at the bottom of these groups that are, you know, like 61st, 62nd, 63rd. Um, I I think that it adds a really unique layer to it to where, sure, you have, like, if you look at a Scheffler group, I think that that group is interesting still. Like, you still have quality, but I, I do kind of believe that a lot of this sentiment that we're talking about comes from the left side being better than the right side. I think if you split this up, more naturally it might not be as pronounced with this because like if you look at like let's take look i always use jason day as an example but let's take jason day's group here like is anybody going to be shocked if jason day advances i'll use your boy spence in here i actually think he might get out of the group and is a good bet that's a very quality group of players like if you move jason day to the right side all of a sudden the right side is much more difficult than it was and I think that's what's lacking is you just have a lot of names at the bottom there that I don't really think have real equity to move on.
1: I agree. I agree, actually. And Jason Day is one of the ones actually in group two that there's a lot of weakness, I think, in that even second tier when you look at like Chris Kirk and Brian Harmon and these guys that are getting through. Um, So speaking of kind of the live guys departing, did you catch any of Danny Lee's victory?
0: I saw that he chipped in or, pu- or whatever he did. I did not watch it, though. I have not watched Have you any- watched really any no. live? No, I have not.
1: I try to watch a little bit of it. Um, it's it's. I think that they have some big problems ahead of them. One is they've got to get rid of 54 holes, and they don't want to do it, but it brings in this additional volatility that is not a good look for them. The more holes played, the more... Like the greater the likelihood that Dustin Johnson or Cam Smith win, which is what they need. They need those big names at the top. They can't have playoffs with Brendan Steele and Danny Lee and these guys and continue to to expect people to tune in. And beside all the other problems that they may have, I just think like it's it's not like for my boy Spencer, like you brought him up, right? So. I remember I, I I chimed in on USF show and I was like Sp- Spence yeah. in top forty lock of the year after fifty four holes the guy was like fucking leading the players so like if you think about all the PGA Tour tournaments that after fifty four holes like something really weird is in front and how the cream ultimately rises to the top over seventy two holes um, I think that that's probably their biggest hurdle if they're going to move forward along with a lot of other things but it was just something that I took away and it's like. Continue to play these things out, and, and if that's the sticking point that's holding them back from OWGR points, and that's what they're they're sort of withholding that for them for, only being 54 whole events, they've just got to change it.
0: Yeah, and it's like, we even can look at it on the PGA Tour. Um, Shank, like... Yeah. I don't want to necessarily say that there was a skill gap difference, but my model seems to think that there's a skill gap difference. And look, I had an outright on Taylor Moore. I had him to win. I had him top five, I had him top 10. Like yeah, did. I ran the entire board with him of everything I could do. I thought he was a top 15 win equity in the field. And I think you look at Jordan Spieth, obviously, you know, he's the second probably win equity choice. And Tommy Fleetwood, like all of a sudden, and Shank almost pulled that off. Like, I don't want to take anything against him, but, you end that tournament all of a sudden like shank very well could have won that if you don't play this through to completion here and kind of goes to your point that the more golf that gets played the cream does rise to the top at the end of the day and uh you can't like on the pga tours perspective of it other than kurt kidiyama winning and even my model seemed to like kurt kidiyama that week like i want to say he was the 40th most likely person to win which if you think about the odds i mean technically there was a little bit of value there i didn't get to that number of it, but there's been, he's the only player that has been outside of the top 10 in my win equity numbers that has won a tournament this year. So, um, maybe that kind of goes back to the point that you keep saying is like the bottom of these fields are just weaker and you're kind of seeing all the cream rise to the top in all these events.
1: Yeah. Well, let's see where your model lines up and shakes up with the odds board this week. The <laughs> All right, my man, Scotty Scheffler, top of the board, eight to one. John Rahm, eleven to one. Rory, twelve to one. Those are the big three in this event. That's kind of what we've seen all season. Um, then you get to Cantlay at twenty, Homa at twenty-two, Fee now at twenty-two. I'll stop right there. Do you see any value based on your sort of win projections on any of these guys? You know, making a bet at the counter with any of them at the top?
0: I'll be rolling over Max Homa. Um, I'm not going to get it directly at the number that he's at. I I do think that the group that he drew is probably conducive to try to get some exposure to him in different capacity of it. So I think if we like look directly and I haven't actually seen what the round one price is, I mean, I assume he's going to be a marginal favorite against Kevin Kisner, but there's going to be that public sentiment that Kevin Kisner is the match play specialist. I think that's a really good opening spot to try to start the rollover on Max Homa there. Um, When we look at a lot of those other guys that you named, I kind of tend to think that Scheffler's group is really difficult. Like it was the seventh most difficult group that I had, but it kind of goes beyond that. Like Alex Noren, match play specialist. I could see him springing an upset against anybody. I think Tom Kim has that youth to him to where he's going to want to try to put on a show. It doesn't mean that he even advances, but would we be shocked if he upset Scotty Scheffler here? I wouldn't be. I think Davis Riley is a unique golfer for this contest. So like we can look at Riley's numbers and we can say, sure, the math of his putting isn't exactly what you want to see. He's inside the top five of my model and putting from 10 to 15 feet. It's a very similar answer that I found with Corey Connors last year to where yeah, the putting wasn't what I wanted from the grand scheme of it, but you make it to that 10 to 15 foot range. All of a sudden he has some equity to it. So I think Scheffler might find himself in some problems to advance there. I kind of would give the same answer about Ron. He comes in the third most difficult group. And you know, whether that's Keith Mitchell, which Mitchell kind of had has had a resurgence this year to where he's one of the best ball strikers in the world from top to bottom of how I run my numbers. Billy Horschel's a match play specialist. Ricky Fowler's had that resurgence to it. Um I kind of worry about those two at their prices. Like I think they're unbettable. Once again, like a rollover bet would probably be the best way to do it. And I still don't really even know what's the best way to get into that. Like, I'm just going to be out on them. I think Patrick Cantley is intriguing. Um, I do think he's also in the most difficult part of that region down there to where if he wins, like I have him taking on Burns. I think that's a very difficult matchup. If he wins that, I have him taking on Homa. Kind of as I was saying, there's very few spots where players start falling apart, like Like I'm trying to find an example here. Like even if Justin Suh ends up getting through, I think he can be a quality match play golfer that can cause people problems with it. So I don't think there's really that easy path for him. That's probably like Burns or Cantley would be the two most rollover options if I didn't take Max Homa. But to me, it's going to be Max Homa that I'm playing this week.
1: Yeah, I actually agree with you. So I, I actually took the outright number, uh, 22 to 1, I think was, was relatively fair. Now, you mentioned there's some rollover strategy where you could definitely amplify that, um, but you get into – I guess my only hesitancy there is if you win enough, you get into a lot of risk, which you could of course pull something off the table, but in order to keep rolling, like he actually was going to play saw in the first round. I don't know what that number is, but he's going to be a heavy favorite, like getting Kisner at third, I think was helpful for him because Kisner is typically around four guy. You're right. I'm, I'm not buying into, um, you know, just, just the 22 and eight match play record, which is of course impressive, but He's not playing nearly at a level that that Homa is. He's actually losing uh, over a stroke and a half over his last 24 rounds. And Homa is plus 2.28, which is actually one of the best in the entire field. So he's the only guy in this sort of side of the brackets from Group 3, 13, 5, and 12 that's gaining over two strokes per round. Um, I think he's the most solid player. I think he's playing better than Patrick Cantlay right now. And even 22 to 1, like... I get what you're saying about the rollover, right? But um, somebody brought it up to me, and it was it was actually, I'll, I'll give credit to Scott Blumstein, who said, um, you know, he was in our season-long league that I do with Rick. So he mentioned, he's like, all these people going absolutely bananas over FDU beating Purdue, right? FDU is like plus, he's like, that's basically the same odds as like Max Homa winning the Farmers. And he's right, like that seems like such... Oh my God. If you picked FDU to upset Purdue in the first round, you got 20 to one on that. What a crazy once in a lifetime bet. Like we hit those all the time. It's it's basically like the fourth guy on the odds board in golf. So it just a kind of another illustration on why golf betting is, is just the absolute most underrated and, and best thing out there for your bang for your buck.
0: Yeah. I mean, golf betting presents that every single week with it. And, um, like I mean, if we're looking like directly with Max Homa here for this example, I think you brought up a very interesting point with it. Like, if you're rollover betting, you're going to need multiple books uh, because you're probably going to run into some sort of uh, credit line problem of yeah. some of these places not being willing. Like, I- I've had that happen numerous times. So, if you're able to spread the exposure across, that's the best way to go about it in that capacity. But. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a really strong group and that's kind of just like my only sentiment for why I keep going back to this with Max Homa here is no matter what path he goes through, it's going to be somewhat difficult compared to other paths. And it doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to have to take on Cantlay or Burns. Like there's other players that can get through, but you know, even if he plays Montgomery in the second round, like there's a lot of like those numbers are never going to be as big as you think they're going to be at the end of the day. You're right. With it. Um, but to your point, yes, I mean it adds up very quickly with it. And that's what yeah. I love about it is you can win a lot more money than you can win just straight betting it as an outright, but you also have to scramble on the back end to make it work.
1: Yeah. And it's just and it's just hard to get through so many. Like you're right. If he plays Taylor Montgomery. It's not like he's gonna be minus 250 against Taylor Montgomery he's probably like a minus 150 or 160 favorite and Montgomery's like plus 130 it's gonna yeah. be like in that range where it's not going to shock you whatsoever if the lower seated or the underdog wins and he's got to do that like six four times you know
0: it adds up quickly like in depending on how you're betting it and it's a difficult path like there's no way around it with home unfortunately like I'm gonna find a way to get exposure to him but It's a very difficult path. Like I would say that that bottom quadrant is probably the most challenging of if we split them up into fours. I would say that's the most difficult group to have to get through and to get yourself into the semifinals.
1: Yeah, I think that I kind of, in my mind, I I thought... I'm a little worried about Jordan Speeth, and I've loved Spieth. I would like, agree with that. We, we got to Riviera, and I was like, saw the iron play that he brought to sort of Phoenix. And I was like, these are checking all the boxes for an indicator that a Speeth win is incoming. Uh, I said he was going to win in like the next five events conveniently because that last one is the Masters. I don't think it's coming this week. I think that was a bit exhausting for him last week being in, in that heated of a competition down the stretch. I think probably. You know, I don't know, staying in a house with Justin Thomas, who elected to skip this event for whatever reasons that he has. He obviously isn't a fan of this event. So I, I just think that the only reason he's here is probably because he feels an obligation and is in Texas. And I just feel like he, he thought the Valspar and mentioned it was was awesome prep for Augusta National. And like the fact that he mentioned that. In almost every interview that he did leads me to believe that that's the only thing on his mind right now. And his really only concern is how well is he playing and how can he be most prepared for for what's going on at the Masters. So this I don't think is is great prep for that. So uh, I just feel like he could, you know, I'm going to ignore the form a little bit and think that he may disregard it. Moving down, you have Hatton at 25 to 1. Victor's been popular. He was at 30, now at 25. Xander at 25. Morikawa 28, Cameron Young at 33, Jason Day at 33. Morikawa and Xander. Something's weird about both of those numbers to me. Um, I haven't looked extensively into their path. How do you feel about either one of those two players?
0: So I have Xander's group being the second most difficult, I have Morikawa's group being the fifth most difficult. Okay, um. I think this is one of those spots with Xander's group where Hoagie becomes a very enticing person that can make a real run at this final four. And if we're saying that like all of a sudden like Rory slips up or he gets through the group with Xander there, like things begin to open up much more than you ever think in golf than any of those other sports in the path that you thought somebody had all of a sudden becomes vastly different there. So uh, Hoagie's, skill set for me is kind of prototypical of what I would want. He's the number one player in my model in weighted part three scoring. He is number one in expected approach plus expected putting. So that would be players that are most likely to get it close and then make the putt. He's top five in weighted T to green in my model. I don't know if he necessarily gets out of that group because it's so difficult, but like, he's the prime example of what I'm talking about here where like the Corey Connors thing last year, where Corey Connors had a very difficult path to get through If Hoagie can get out of that group, I think it opens up for him. So for that reason, I'm out on Xander. And then as far as Morikawa is concerned, I kind of just go back to thinking that like, it's very close. And usually the way I run my numbers is they're, they're similar to what the sports books put out. So, and, and I'm not running back end numbers, trying to mimic sports books. It just so happens that like, if I have an outlier it means something to me. Like if I have a player that's not grading as well as the projected output, that means something. Or if a player is grading better than the projected output. When I look at that group between Morikawa, Day, and Svensson, I legitimately believe that you could say that like their win equity to get through is so similar to one another. And I don't know if that means Day gets through. I don't know if that means Svensson gets through. But I'm willing to take on more call-up just because I think the group is too difficult. And my numbers don't believe that he necessarily has that abundance of an advantage to be able to work with. And it kind of goes down to the putter with me at the end of the day. Like I don't trust him from 5 to 15 feet over the course of three matches. It doesn't mean that he can't beat Jason Day, but that's kind of where like the unique thing can come into play where maybe your boy Spenson can make a run at this and all of a sudden he sneaks out of the group.
1: Yeah, you know, I I really didn't put much thought into this being an event for Svenson, if I'm being honest with you, Spencer. But you make great points. Like, if you're telling me that you don't see that big of a gap between the win like percentage that Morikawa comes out or Day comes out, well, there Collins 25 to one, Jason Day's 30 to one, Svenson's 150, right? So it's it's interesting that you kind of put it that way. I'm looking at the Xander group as well. Um, Tom Hokey 70 to one, and you're and you're absolutely right. Like I don't think Xander's playing as well as he wants to be, or we all sort of expected him to be. And that that to me is the toughest group because um, Hoagie's playing, his iron play is at an elite level. I think this is a great course setup for him. I think that he could go very well. Um, Cameron Davis, who's the fourth guy, finally sort of showed some signs of life. And I think if this event were to take place in January, so let's rewind the clock like two months, right? Cameron Davis is probably like a very popular three seed and not the four seed in that group. And then you look at uh, right above him. Who was it? I just lost it. Oh, Aaron Wise. Aaron Wise went like when we did our season long draft, he went like 18th. Right. I feel like there's top six. If there's 16 top players, like he would have been a group two guy. Davis would have been a group three guy. You throw in Hoagie, who's playing great, and I feel like that's going to be very tough to come out of. So, yeah, I don't I don't love either one of those guys' odds, given who's else in their group. So if we disregard Xander at 25 to one, what do you have? Hoagie at 70. Um, where is... Wise is 125. Davis is 150. So you're almost like... I don't know, I'd almost rather take all three of them than take Xander because even if um, Hoagie hits, you're three times the price right there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, to me, I'm going to take Hoagie and he's the person I'm going to have exposure to, but I, I like, if we're looking at wise and Cameron Davis, and I'll just very quickly give a season long answer here since you brought it up. So when I ran my numbers from a season long perspective, like my model is always so much higher than everybody else when it comes to wise and Cameron hmm. Davis, and maybe not compared to what you're telling me on this draft, but like I had Aaron wise as a legitimate top 12 golfer this season that has not worked out in that capacity. And I had Cameron Davis as a top 25 sort of golfer. I think that, you know, we've heard Cameron Davis talk about the health and some of the problems that he's had. Hopefully he's turned it around and it looks like he has after the players here. I don't know where Aaron wise is with his game right now. Some of those proximity numbers scare me. Some of his bunker play scares me specifically for this course. So, I worry about him in that capacity. But like I said, it's the second most difficult group, which you could even make an argument that it could be the most difficult group because all four players have a chance to really get out of there. And it kind of goes back to what I keep saying with it. It's let's say just for the sake of the argument here, let's say Hoagie gets out of this. Well, now we look at Fitzpatrick's group. I don't necessarily love that group from top to bottom, like. I kind of tend to think that J.J. Spawn might pull the upset. And if he doesn't, I could see Min Minwoo Lee, maybe the Gala gets hot over three days. So now all of a sudden that opens it up down there. I don't know. With Terrell Hatton, I don't really know what to think. Like he is the public darling right now. It seems like yeah. every person has a bet on him. And he is the favorite to get out of the group, but it's not substantially so over Russell Henley. And I'll go back to one thing just with Russell Henley very fast, that the reason why I liked him last year when I made brackets and obviously he went 0-3 last year, and it was an unmitigated disaster from top to bottom. So look, you can make numbers sound and look however you want with it at the end of the day. But let's throw out last year for one quick second here. Henley in his match play career had never lost before the 18th hole going into last year's tournament. To me, that means it's a golfer that has underachieved in match play from what we should be expecting. I would not be surprised if at some point he makes a run here. And I think it's kind of a wide open path if he does. And then if we want to go down to the bottom here with Rory, you know, I don't know what to think with Rory. I don't necessarily think he's as in tuned with his game as he's been in years past now, Denny McCarthy. And I'm not a Denny McCarthy guy for anybody who listens to me. He has the one intangible that that rest of the group doesn't. He has a putter that can get hot. I could see him taking Rory out for that reason. And even if he doesn't win the group, Maybe it opens it up for a Keegan Bradley. Maybe he gets himself through. But that's kind of like the point I'm making when I'm saying that bottom end. All of a sudden, remove Rory, remove Hatton, and remove Fitzpatrick from the mix. I mean, this is so wide open. And one of those names in those four areas there will make the final four. It's just, can you figure out who that person is?
1: What do you do as like someone who's very analytical and and runs the models and is very data driven? I think with the majority of um, the information that I think you believe in and that you dole out, what do you make of, like, how do you properly input into a model or data a guy's match play record? Do you totally disregard it? Like, how do you, how do you input that Keegan Bradley is one in 12? You know, how do you input a Kevin Kisner into that or something like Russell Henley? Like, is there an effective way to sort of quantify that? Or is it just, this is just the randomness of golf and how things shook out. And I know Kevin Kisner is the, I know the player of him to be and same with Keegan Bradley. And even though that he's only won one of his last 13 matches, I'm willing to sort of disregard it because he's playing great golf.
0: So I guess like, it's a difficult question to answer here with it. So I did incorporate match play. So one of the ways that I do it is I take a statistical perspective every week. This isn't even just for match play. I take a statistical perspective. I take a current form. I take a course history. So the course history this week would be somebody's match play record. And when I look Mm -hmm. at the match play record, there's two ways that you can look at it. The first one is, is you take the ties count as a win, just so you don't get a loss there. Cause I think like you're allowed to have a tie in your group play portion of it and still advance. If you go win, win tie, you know, you're I mean, you're either going to be in a playoff or you're going to have advanced at that point. So yep. um, that's one way to look at it. The second way would be just wins only from it. So I ran a 60, 40 split between those two numbers. I took a combination of both. That's 10% of my hundred percent split that I have into it. So it's very minimal. Like at the end of the day, course history or match play records, those are things that I'm generally overlooking. Um, I would rather find players that are in form, like that ended up being 20%. And then the 70% I ran is just the statistical perspective of it. And uh, I took it a step further also. So like I have a power ranking for each player. And then I also took the power ranking from each player. I have nine critical statistical categories that I ran this week. I kind of made a power ranking between each group. So Hmm. I guess like the best example to give of this, like since we were talking about McCarthy here. Uh, I gave a number attached to each rank. So McCarthy is the best putter in that group. He got one point for me. The worst putter got four points. And I kind of ran it out in that capacity to figure out where the advantages were with it. So McCarthy's going to get his edge in putting. He's going to lose it in an area like, I mean, I guess the worst thing for him for me would be weighted par five scoring. And kind of just figure out where the advantages, because it goes back to the March Madness bracket aspect of college basketball it's not that a team like fdu necessarily would win a matchup against purdue it's that it was the perfect matchup for them to be able to do it and i think that's march madness in a nutshell there is it comes down to a stylistical fit and that's the same way i'm approaching this from a golf perspective with it i'm trying to find the stylistical fits of players that might have a skill set that can present problems for the rest of the people in the bracket. And, you know, they might get past that. And that's kind of where like a JJ spawn comes into play where I think he's a really nice statistical fit for his group to at least have a possibility to get past. Now, all of a sudden, if he has to play Hoagie or Xander or, you know, Cameron Davis, well, then it doesn't become as good of a fit, but he is like the perfect group to try to make a run with it. So that's how I tried to view it from a mathematical perspective. And obviously There's a lot more hand done work than I need to put together than most weeks to get it to work. But it's kind of like my unique skill set of trying to merge this into something that made logical sense on all levels of it.
1: It's interesting and well said. Um, You know, I that was kind of going to be sort of my answer on it is that match play is only all like the part that it doesn't factor in. And the part when we're looking at strokes gained data every single week is that. Um, there's a constant and it's all against the course, and the weather exactly. will play a little bit of a factor in that. But every player is at a constant match play record. What you're not seeing in looking at Keegan Bradley being one in 12 is who did he go against and what kind of round did they shoot? Like, did the guy he was shooting have the round of the day? Is he playing against guys who are in the top 10 percentile and just had their best round of the week? Of course, he's going to lose that matchup. And is Kevin Kisner playing guys? who underperform based on their sort of baseline, which is allowing his match play record to be greater. So like you mentioned it with Purdue and and FDU, like it's all about the team and the the opponent that you're going up against and less about the constant that we see every week, which is the same golf course that all 64 players are are playing upon. It's only about you and the one other player that you're playing against, really.
0: Yeah, and, and I think like the Russell Henley example becomes really indicative of what you just said there. Yeah. Look, you look at the match play record and you say Russell Henley has not been great in this format. Well, he's losing on the final hole or getting to the final hole every single time and just is not pulling off the wins there. And I can't tell you how many matchups I've watched from Kevin Kisner over the last couple of years to where he's losing, he chips in, he does something that is just not quantifiable over a long duration of time. Like he's not going to be able to sustain that success with it. And not, look, I mean, Kisner is, I'm picking on him this week because he's also bringing no form to the mix with it. But like, there's something to be said about what you just talked about there. Is he beating players to where he's shooting two over par? If you want to actually like put out the total of what his number was and his opponent imploded on him every single hole and just made bogey after bogey after bogey, or is he going out and like even Henley, um, when I bet him last year with it, or maybe two years ago with it, um, he had so many situations to where like I remember he played Sung two years ago. I want to say they were like six under par and seven under par when you put out their totals. And one of those guys unfortunately had to lose, but that doesn't show up on the back end of the numbers. Like you won't <laughs> know that unless you remember it or you have the information for it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So before we before we kind of wrap up, man, anyone like let's say 50, let's say 60 to one and above. so sort of long shot range. Like who's your favorite guy this week you think that has the best chance if you're gonna put a long shot bet in?
0: It's Tom Hoagie for me. I like I think okay. Tom Hoagie has legitimate win equity at this tournament. I think he can also make the final four very easily just because of the path that he has for him. And it's going to be interesting what happens on the top of that right side of the draw. Um, you know, if for some reason it doesn't end up being wrong, Cameron Young, Tony Finau, this can open up very quickly for him that it could be Hoagie versus somebody random. And, uh, I think he's going to have to beat a quality golfer in the final. I'd be shocked if somebody on the left side got through that. I don't view as like a top 10 or 15 sort of name here with it, but I think Hoagie has the right side of the draw. I think he has the right price. I think he has the right skill set with the way to tee to green stuff, the approach, the uh, putting that you add to it. I think it's a really good fit for him to potentially make a run and then I guess like my cop out second answer just staying on that side would probably be Russell Henley just because I think he's an underachiever. The the one thing that I worry about a little bit with Henley would just come down to the boomer bus aspect nature that I have from his skill set here. So like if I look at the high end of it, he's seventh in my model in total driving plus short iron proximity. He can also get really bad in the weighted putting from five to 15 feet. You're going to have to make putts. And maybe at the end of the day, that's why the match play record isn't what you would hope for because he's not making those putts that are like prerequisites to actually win your matches into advance. But, you know, it's at least like a part of the bracket that can open up for him.
1: Very cool, dude. So my two guys are Minwoo, 90 to one, Taylor Montgomery, 100 to one. Um, I, I like Montgomery's situation, even going up against Spieth there. Um, I think if you can, if he can sort of escape, now I realize that he's in a different quadrant, but if he can get out of group 12, um, there are some unknowns. If some, For some reason, he doesn't have to go through home home on Cantley, getting to sort of the final four there. Um, Joe, can I add yeah. one
0: thing to that really fast? Yeah. Because I, I, I love the Montgomery play. I, I actually think one of the best bets on the board right now is Montgomery to win the group at three to one. Uh, I could make a strong argument that like, while my numbers very slightly have speed as the favorite Montgomery should not be as big of an underdog as he is like I see speed at plus 175 to advance uh, Lowry at plus 220 Montgomery at plus 300. To me, those are like three players that are very similar to one another. And if you're telling me that speed all of a sudden becomes overvalued because of that, that three to one number is a very enticing price.
1: Yeah, and even I think uh, we'll keep a heads out for his pricing and sort of the individual matchups because he's likely going to be an underdog in two of those three opening matchups against Lowry and and against Spieth. Um, Yeah, dude. Uh, Where else can people catch some of your content this week? Um, You know, plug your stuff. It was awesome to talk to you. And and where can everyone check out some more of your stuff?
0: Yeah, once again, Joe, I really appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure to do this with you. You can find me on Twitter at T-Off Sports. A lot of my written content can be found over at Rotoballer. Like uh, All the models and all the stuff that I've talked about, you can get those models over at Rotoballer. I'll have an Action Network piece tomorrow uh, that you're, I'm going to probably talk about some of my first-round plays that I have. Do a Links and Locks podcast for Action Network. I do, which I'd love to have you on at some point to do the PGA Draftcast that I do for Win Daily. Uh, that's a great show that we draft lineups against the audience. So you'll have to come on for that. And then, yeah, you can catch me with Steffi Smalls on Match Play. I'm actually going to record with her tonight with that. So uh, once again, it's an absolute pre- pleasure to do this, Joe.
1: Dude, it was awesome to have you on. I wish you all the best. You are a absolute wealth of golf knowledge and insight you're you're great on the keyboard you're great on camera so um it was it was a blast to have you on and we'll, we'll have to get you back here soon and if you ever need anything just reach out man happy to happy to uh, assist in any way i can
0: thank you joe i i really appreciate it
1: all right man i'll talk to you later all right bye All right. All right. Good stuff, Brent. Thank you. Um, Thank you as always for checking out the show. I really appreciate you guys. Um, No final thoughts segment this week. I'm just going to kind of wrap up the show here. Um, Best of luck to everyone with the match play event. Um, As always, I will be doing the jock market power hour show with, with Rick Gaiman on Wednesdays. If you haven't checked that out, if you haven't subscribed for jock market, you should, I have a promo code for you. You're happy to use it. Um, My matchup stuff. Fellas, my matchup stuff over in the Discord for Tour Junkies. Head-to-head matchups on the season. It's basically all that I put in there. 33-17 and on the year. An outrageous record. I probably can never do this again, so you're going to want to get in on this hot run. Um, You guys are awesome for checking out the show. Give it a like. Give it a subscribe on the way out. It's been a pleasure to do another episode of Preferred Lines for you, and I wish you all the best of luck in Austin. Catch you next week. Peace.